So how is everyone doing? You okay? You thawed out? I'm looking for two young women. I, I promise I would find a seat for them if they were still standing in the back. You got your seats. Excellent. I made a commitment. I was going to keep it. Okay. I love the snow. Did I mention that? Not really. Okay, what am I doing? Okay, I'm teaching. Okay, let's go. Um, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts 15. Acts 15, uh, and it's, um, we're going to look at the whole chapter. It's a little long, so what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you sort of the Reiki abbreviated version, okay, to get us through it, and we'll talk a little bit about it. Acts 15, um, if you need a Bible, you should find one in one of the chair racks around you. I'm going to start in uh, Acts 15, chapter 1. Chapter, oh, no, what am I saying? Verse 1. I am really having an issue here. Uh, let me just, let me gain control. Is my wife in the room? Because I know later she's going, what was the matter with you? Okay, chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and, and some of the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither uh, we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers, uh, with them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat, strangled, uh, the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So if you're a guest this morning, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called uh, Going Viral, and it's a study of this uh, ancient document we know as Acts. It's a document that records how the early church and its, um, its good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading quickly from the streets of Jerusalem uh, to the farthest reaches of the known uh, world. Jesus said to his followers, you will be my disciples, or my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and that's exactly what happens. 
Uh, the church in Jerusalem grows from a handful of believers to uh, over 15,000 people, most of whom in the face of persecution leave the city and kind of venture out into the surrounding region. Uh, as they go, they embody the mission of Jesus. They, uh, they share the good news of God's grace. Uh, they serve the physical and spiritual needs of people and invite into community those who were racially and culturally different. And as a result, uh, not only did Jewish uh, men and women turn to Jesus, but also Samaritans, uh, Africans, Greeks, Romans, and all these people were spiritually transformed, their lives changed forever. So today, uh, we come to this chapter, chapter 15, which, uh, you know, sometimes uh, can get overlooked in a study like this, because... Well, because on the surface, it just seems really dull. You know what I mean? It, there are no great sermons. There, there, are, there are no miracles, no mass conversions. No, no one is imprisoned or persecuted. Nothing like that goes on. Instead, the text simply records what happens at a meeting in Jerusalem when some church leaders get together to discuss theology. And for many of us, nothing could sound more boring than that, Right? A room full of theologians debating stuff like whether God could create a boulder so heavy even he couldn't lift it. You know what I mean? Some of us would rather watch paint dry. I mean, it just sounds, it sounds really brutal. Um, and here's the deal. If that were the case, uh, I would consider skipping the chapter. Uh, but it's not. In fact, what happens in that Jerusalem meeting is not only fascinating, but, but critical to the future of the church. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, let's, let's talk about it, because as chapter 15 opens, we find Barnabas and Paul in Antioch. Antioch was a city uh, th- 300 miles north of Jerusalem, built on the Orontes River. Today, it's called Antakya. It's uh, located within the, the borders of Turkey. And because Antioch was located just 16 miles from a, a Mediterranean seaport, in the first century, it was a bustling city, full of businesses of all, all types, uh, filled with traders and merchants coming and going. Uh, it sat along a heavily traveled road that linked the Roman Empire to Persia and, in, and to India. And all of that made um, Antioch a highly commercialized and multicultural city populated by, by Romans, Greeks, Syrians, Jews, Africans. Um, and, and in that diverse environment, uh, as followers of Jesus shared the good news of, of God's love and grace, huge numbers of people were coming to faith in Jesus. And the church was growing. In fact, Antioch would become a key, uh, key player in the expansion of Christianity worldwide because, uh, because of all these people coming and going from all different regions uh, they would come into the city to do business, they'd come to faith, and then they'd go back home and they'd bring the message of the gospel with them. So uh, Antioch was a key, a key city in the first century. Apparently at one point uh, along the way here, a group of people from Judea show up and they start telling all these Gentile believers, they said to them, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. Translation, belief in Jesus is fine, but it's not enough to be a Christian, you have to follow the Mosaic law. You have to perform the religious rituals associated with it in order to get to heaven. And uh, when Paul and Barnabas hear what they were saying, they get upset and they challenge these people on what they were telling these Gentiles. And the church in Antioch was like, oh, what are we going to do about this controversy, this, this disagreement? So they decide uh, to send, uh, to appoint Paul and Barnabas along with some other believers, to send them up to Jerusalem um, uh, to see the apostles and the elders about this question. What question? Whether you have to believe in Jesus plus obey uh, Judaic law to be a Christian. 
So the group heads out. The text says they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria in order to get to Jerusalem, i.e. it was a long way to go. It took some time, which makes you wonder, why would Paul want to go in the first place? I mean, his teaching ministry in Antioch was exploding. It was taking off. The church was growing. And here's a guy who was becoming a key leader in, in the greatest spiritual movement of history. A guy who would write documents that, you know, here 2,000 years later, are read and discussed by millions of people almost every Sunday, if not every day of the week. And yet Paul doesn't say, hey man, I'm too busy speaking and leading and doing my thing here in Antioch. I'm too important to the church here to go up to Jerusalem to debate theology. Who wants to do that anyway? Instead, he stops and drops everything to make the journey. Why? It's because Paul realized the importance of getting the answer to this question right. He understood the spiritual significance of the meeting that was going to take place and how, how it would be one theological debate that really mattered. Mattered in what way? Well, it mattered, uh, there was the matter of accuracy, for example. You know, what was the truth? What was the truth? Because Paul and Barnabas were saying, uh, their contention was, look, the good news of Jesus isn't so good if we're still burdening people with Judaic law and religious ritual. They were saying the gospel is about grace and grace alone, and so in their minds, that needed to be officially uh, clarified and articulated by the apostles back in Jerusalem. Now, the importance of, of that may be hard for some of us to comprehend because we live in such an individualistic culture where what really matters to most people is how they feel about something. You know, what do I feel is true? What do I feel to be true? For example... When people hear about Christianity talked of in terms of, of love, that's very appealing uh, to some people. Uh, but if they hear it talked about in terms of objective truth, not so much. Because truth is something you have to submit to. And who wants to do that? And so truth today has become relative. You know, it's something that we all get to decide for ourselves. The dominant issue of our culture is more about what do I feel to be true and what works for me versus what is actually true, whether I feel good about it or not. And a lot of people will say, I'm, I'm interested in being a Christian. I'm just not really into the whole theological dogma thing and doctrines. Well, okay, but I mean, if you consider the situation in Antioch, I think you'd agree uh, that clarifying the truth mattered, all right? It, mat it mattered then, it matters today, because when it comes to belief, I mean, people say all kinds of different things. You know, for example, over here, you have secularists, you have atheists. And by the way, there were atheists in the first century. Um, the first um, um, most well-known atheist of history is a guy, 5th century B.C. Greek poet. His name was Diagoras of Melos. Uh, he proclaimed himself an atheist. It wasn't very popular to do at the time, but he did. So uh, that, was, that was 500, 400 years before Paul. So in Paul's day, there were, there were secularists, there were atheists, just like there are today, and there are people who say, they say, we believe that human beings are the accidental result of the blind workings of matter. There is no God, there is no transcendent truth, Love is just a chemical reaction in your brain. It's just some synapses that are firing. It really doesn't mean much. Your, la your life lasts about 70 years, give or take a few, and then you're dead. And when you're dead, you're dead. Any fulfillment or happiness you hope to achieve comes by way of good social services and or political activism. So that you have those folks over here. And then over here, you have, you have the moralists. 
You have the moralists who, who believe that there's a God out there somewhere in some, some shape or form. And uh, if, you, if, you, if you work hard enough at being good and, and moral and religious, you just may find him, her, the essence, whatever it might be, and prove yourself worthy of love and attention. But your only hope is in yourself. Good luck. And then you have the Christian who says, I believe human beings are meant to live forever, uniquely designed and loved by the God who created them. Um, a God who we've all turned away from in our own arrogance and rebellion. And in our broken, alienated condition, any hope of lasting happiness comes through being reunited to this God by way of his divine grace and forgiveness. Three different people, three very different beliefs about the universe. All of them cannot be right. Two will lead you astray. When addressing this very thing, Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis once said, he said, you know, people live according to their beliefs. And when it comes to God, when it comes to the universe, he said, the person who is wrong will act in a way which simply doesn't fit the real universe. Consequently, with the best intentions, he who is wrong will be helping his fellow creatures to their destruction. Elsewhere, Lewis summarized it this way. He said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So all that to say is, getting the message of Jesus, getting the message of Christianity, getting the gospel, the good news, getting it right matters. Accuracy matters. Truth matters. It mattered in the first century, and it matters today. Because along with it comes the matter of freedom. Now, what do I mean by freedom? Well, keep in mind, the earliest followers of Jesus were Jewish. They were from Jewish backgrounds. You know, men and women, they were men and women who tried to obey the best they could the Mosaic and Levitical laws. And there were a lot of them. You know, men had to be circumcised. There were, there were things you could eat and things you couldn't eat. There were ways you could dress and ways you couldn't dress. There was stuff you could touch, stuff you couldn't touch. Uh, there were days you did this and that and the other thing, and other days you couldn't do this, that, and the other thing. There were a lot of do's and don'ts. I mean, life was heavily regulated. And many early Jewish believers in Jesus continued to adhere to those religious regulations after coming to faith. But when the Gentiles heard the news of God's love, the Greeks, the Romans, the Africans, and when they came to faith in Jesus, man, they knew nothing of this. They knew nothing of these Levitical regulations. No idea. And they didn't, so they didn't adopt them. They didn't follow them. And Paul and Barnabas didn't require them to. And therein lied the rub. That was the issue. You know, don't these Gentile believers have to accept and live according to Jewish Levitical law? Don't they? And Paul and Barnabas were saying no. And yet you had these other certain group of people who were saying, yes, they did. And they said, unless they do, they, unless you Gentiles live this way, according to the law, you can't be saved, which means there was a lot at stake uh, in this meeting. When you think about it, freedom was at stake, spiritual freedom, which is ultimately what makes Christianity so unique. See, all other traditional religions come to us as advice, on, advice on what we need to do, advice on how we, how we need to perform in order to connect to God or to the divine essence or the divine life. But the message of Jesus is completely different. It's not, it's not good advice, it's good news, news of what God has done for us. Salvation isn't something you work to achieve, it's something you receive. 
It's not about conforming to a, a laundry list of religious rules and regulations or, or connecting to a group of people striving to be good enough and pious enough to make it. No. Make no mistake about it. All other religions may start out by intriguing you or even inspiring you, but in the end, they will crush you. They will burden you. And that's what Paul and Barnabas were speaking out against. They were this, they say, Let's, don't crush the Gentiles by placing the burden of Jewish law on them. I mean, throughout the New Testament, there's a lot written about that, a lot written about how Judaism burdened people, right? And how Jesus came, and he was all about what? He was all about taking the burden off, Yeah? He's all about that. Remember, Jesus said to those who were burdened and beaten down by religion, just being crushed by it, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My yoke is easy. In fact, that very language shows up in this debate. Paul and Barnabas, they go down to Jerusalem. They report to the apostles and the elders about how all these Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus, and everybody's excited about it, the text says. Everybody's excited. And then the other group stands up and says, yeah, we're excited too. It's great the Gentiles believe in Jesus, but now they must be circumcised, and they are, must be required to keep the law of Moses. And so the discussion begins, and there's a back and forth going on. Uh, and as it continues, eventually the apostle Peter speaks up. And Peter says, he says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving, them, uh, giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to, to bear? You see what he's saying? He's saying, obviously the Gentiles don't comply to Levitical law, but neither do we. He said, we can't keep it. We can't keep it. Our forefathers couldn't keep it. Peter says, no. No, we believe it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Boom, drop the mic. Right? <laughs> and that's kind of what happened. The text says everybody got silent. Because Peter says, no, it's about grace. Grace alone, not works, not performance. It's grace. Grace for us, the Jews. Grace for them, the Gentiles. And the place gets silent. Then according to the text, Paul and Barnabas offer a few more comments. And then James, who is kind of head of the church uh, in Jerusalem, he speaks up and he quotes some scripture to support what Peter is saying, and we don't have time to go into that, but ultimately it's confirmed by all the apostles, all the elders, and the leaders that salvation is about Jesus plus nothing. And that truth, that good news of grace, spiritually frees people. It doesn't burden them. It frees them. It spiritually frees them, which means... The debate in this case was also about cultural freedom, right? I mean, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans, the Africans, the Asians, uh, they didn't have to become culturally Jewish to be Christians. You know, they didn't have to suddenly uh, walk like, Jew like a Jewish person or talk like a Jewish person or dress like a Jewish person or eat or sing or dance like a Jewish person or follow any of the Jewish customs. They didn't have to do that. Most importantly, they didn't have to adhere to the Old Testament law. Why? Because the perfect fulfillment of that law had come. Jesus. He lived the perfect life that no one could live, and he died the death we each deserve, deserve to die. His sacrifice for sin, 
His offer of forgiveness, forgiveness and eternal life was for the world, for all of humanity, for people of every nation, every tribe, every language, every culture, Scripture says. Think about that. Every nation, tribe, language, and culture. Think of the implications. Heaven is going to be an extremely diverse place. Understand something. Christianity is not owned by any one culture. It's not. Now, what happens here in Acts 15, in my opinion, for what it's worth, happens today uh, still in, in churches where some Christians will come along and say, yep, Jesus died for us, but unless, unless you do this, that, and the other thing like we think you should, you're not a real Christian. You're not. Now, most of us in this room would say, well, I would never do that. I'd never tell someone they need to be circumcised or follow Levitical law to be a true Christian. And you're right, you probably wouldn't. However, just as it was with some of the earliest believers, it's easy for us in the church to lose sight of grace and slip back toward legalism and begin attaching various things to Christianity. You know, taking what are cultural and or personal preferences and demanding that others conform to them as some arbitrary measure of righteousness or spirituality. Just like, just like this one group was saying to the Gentiles, unless you do this, you're not a real Christian. Sometimes we do the same thing. Unless you do this and this and this, this way... Eh, you're not really spiritual. You're not a real Christian. Unless you worship in a certain way or sing songs in a certain way or if you, unless you dress a particular way in church, you're not a real Christian. You're not really spiritual. I know a guy who won't come here because I don't wear a suit. Come on, man. Seriously? Have you heard of John the Baptist? The dude wore like, he wore a camel hair cloak. He never cut his hair, never cut his beard. Yet Jesus said, no one born of woman is greater than John. It's not about those things. You know, it just isn't. But we, we tend to make it about that. And we tend to impose on people our, our cultural preferences, our personal preferences. Um, I, remember, I remember the first time I ever experienced a church service out, outside the United States. Uh, it was in Honduras, and we were, we were going, we were there building a church uh, building for people out in, out, out in the jungles outside the city of San Pedro Sula, and one Sunday, we're, the first Sunday we were there, we were going to a church service in the city, and so uh, the service was, was scheduled to start at 10 o'clock. Uh, of course, us Americans got there at 20 of, right? So we get there early, and we're sitting there. Well, 10.30 comes around, and I'm still sitting there, and nothing's happening. And I'm like, what the heck, man? What's going on around here? You know, and then 1045, so there's starting to be a little bit of movement, but, you know, nothing really gets started until 11. And then the thing goes for three hours. Two hours into it, I'm thinking, I, God wants out of this, I, you, know, <laughs> you know. I didn't feel too guilty. I'm thinking God must want, he, God's saying, it's okay, I get it. You know? So what I was doing, though, is I was imposing my, you know, my, my American Western opinions about how worship should be done and when it should be done and punctuality and, and thinking to myself, man, these Honduran Christians, are, they're messed up. They don't know what they're doing. You know? And I'm thinking the Honduran Christians are looking at me and say, why is that American all uptight over there? What's his deal? You know, he's messed up. You know, do you see what I'm saying? We impose things on one another that we shouldn't, but we do it. We do it a lot. And 
And so here's the question, you know, what arbitrary cultural custom or personal preference are you attaching to Christianity and then judging others by it? What is it? None of us is, ab- none of us, none of us is above doing this, by the way, not, not one of us. In fact, Tertullian um, was a, an early church, uh, second, early second century church leader called the church father. And this is a mosaic of him that, um, that was found. It's on the front cover of a book. Uh, he was really the first Christian apologist. Uh, he wrote a text called Against All Heresies. It's a classic defense of the Christian faith. And, and Tertullian was, you know, he, he was all about the grace of God and Jesus. And, but later in life, interestingly, later in life, he began to drift toward legalism. And uh, Tertullian started to create his own list of clean and what he perceived to be clean and unclean activities. And he said, you know, he said, you know, Christians shouldn't go to the theater because of its origins in paganism. And then he said, you know, Christians shouldn't dance because it might inflame sexual passions. And he said, Christians shouldn't wear cosmetics or perfume. Why? (laughs) Tertullian said, because if God wanted you to smell like a flower, he would have put a bouquet of them on your head. That's what he said. And that came from a dude wearing that hat. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, man, take off that hat. You can't be a Christian wearing that hat. What is that? What's going on there? Right? <laughs> Seriously. Here's a great church leader who, who drifts back into that whole legalistic thing. Um, none of us are above doing it. Even as Christians who affirm the grace of God, our hearts tend to default to religious, cultural legalism. And we just need... We need we just need to be aware of that. We need to be careful of that, you know, careful of demanding people conform to, to non-biblical requirements and judging them accordingly. At this meeting in Jerusalem, the apostles, the elders, the leaders of the church, they agreed. They, they said, look, if Jewish believers want to continue adhering to Levitical laws and customs, fine, they're free to do it. They can do it all they want, but it's not necessary to be a Christian. Gentiles did not have to conform to Judaism, religiously or culture, culturally. The gospel was and is about grace, Jesus plus nothing. So the meeting dealt with this this matter of freedom. It also involved the matter of community. Let's think about it. Here was this theological disagreement, you know, in the church. And what happens? The identified leaders and a select number of believers, they come together and they work through the issue. You know, they they share their opinions, they, they read the scriptures, they talk about Jesus, they pray, and eventually they decide what to do, saying, and this is a very humble way of saying it, saying, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us collectively. In other words, they make their decision in the context of Christian community. And I'm making note of this because, you know, one comment I often hear from people today is, you know, people say, well, you know, you can be a good Christian without being part of a church. You ever hear anyone say that? You can be a good Christian without being part of a church. And there's a degree of truth to that, although a lot depends on what you mean by being a good Christian. I mean, certainly you can believe in Jesus and experience the grace of God outside the context of a local church, but that's not what most people mean when they make the statement. What they're really saying is, look, I can decide for myself what God wants for me, and I can, I can discern the will of God on my own. I can, I can pray on my own. I, I can study and interpret Scripture by myself. I can follow the leading of the Holy Spirit without anybody else's help. I don't need community. I don't need accountability. 
And I don't know how, how else to respond to that except to say, it's just not true. I don't care who you are. It's not true. We all need accountability. You know, Christian community is critical to spiritual growth and maturity. Because we're all, look, we're all so wounded. We're all so deeply wounded. We're all, we're all broken, imperfect men and women. We all have our own prejudices. We have our own issues. We have our own preferences, our own biases. We all have blinders on about ourselves, things about ourselves that we can't see. We just can't see them. And we need others around us who we trust to help, help us recognize those things and to overcome those things. We need each other to ensure that we are understanding the Scripture correctly and we are discerning the will of God correctly and we're carrying out the mission that Jesus gave to the church and we're using our God-given gifts for the betterment of the, of, of our, of the believing community and the community at large. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in the New Testament. He says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the, the bad habit of doing, essentially is what he's saying. See, involvement in Christian community helps prevent spiritual drift. It does. And I'll tell you what, if Peter and Paul and all the other apostles saw the value of it, it would be foolish and arrogant of me to think, I don't need it. I do. You know, the way we, we say it around here at Parfview is, we are better together. We are better together. We are. And that's true for us. It was true for the early church. The apostles, the elders, the other believers, they come together, they pray, they discuss, they study, and eventually choose two leaders to go back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and explain to the Gentile believers about, about how the true gospel is all about Jesus plus nothing. So they're going to go back to explain this. But um, they decide to summarize the, the message in writing. So they, they send them with this letter. And the letter says, To the Gentile believers in Antioch, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling you, confusing your minds by what they said. In other words, we're sorry for what's happened and, and what you were told about having to, to be circumcised in order to be saved and follow the, the Levitical laws to be a Christian. It's just not true. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth, in other words, to explain to you more fully what we're writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, reading that, you may be thinking, well, hold on a, se hold on a second, Ray. It seems the apostles were imposing things on the Gentile believers in Antioch. And I get that because of the word requirements. Bad translation. Literally, the Greek term that's used here means important or essential things. A much better translation uh, would be this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond a few important things we're asking you to be responsible about. That is a great translation, by the way. It just <laughs> really captures the essence of things. But that's what the word means. You know, we're not burdening you with anything beyond a few important things. We're just asking you to be responsible about. And the things that they were told to avoid had nothing to do with their salvation, but it had everything to do with community. 
specifically their relationship to fellow Jewish believers. And we know that because all the things that are mentioned were part of pagan worship rituals. Eating the meat and drinking the blood of strangled animals, sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality, temple prostitution, and other orgiastic elements. All of those those things were part of what the pagans did in their temples as a way of worshiping their many gods and deities. And uh, so think of it this way. The apostles were basically saying to Gentile believers, listen, we're sorry for what you were told by some of your fellow Jewish believers, and we just want you to know there is no need for circumcision or adherence to Levitical law to be a true Christian. You don't have to be culturally Jewish. But for the sake of unity, we're asking you to go out of your way and avoid some of these things that are offensive to your Jewish believing friends. Avoid those temple activities, you know. Stay away from those things. And when you understand it that way, you realize that the leaders in Jerusalem were simply encouraging respect and and peace and understanding and cooperation and unity between the two groups. In fact, the text says when the letter got delivered to the church in Antioch, it says the, the people read it and they were glad for its encouraging message. They were glad for this. So the meeting in Jerusalem addressed matters of accuracy, freedom, community. It also addressed... The matter of faith. You know, one of the things that stands out to me most in this text is how Peter, you know, this Jewish guy, stands up in public and he says, God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. God did not discriminate. In other words, God didn't prefer Jews over Gentiles. He purified them as well, Peter says, by faith. Now, Why is that so amazing? It's amazing because, look, Jewish people at the time were told, they were told all of their lives that Gentiles were were dirty, filthy, unclean pagans who did abominable things, perverted things, who worshipped idols. They were disgusting. And so for Peter to stand up and say that these Gentiles were now purified, even though they were they were uncircumcised, even though they would still eat food that Jewish people wouldn't eat, even though they, they would dress in ways that Jewish people wouldn't dress, etc., etc., he says they were now as clean as anyone else in the church. Why? Because of the grace of God. How? By way of faith in Jesus. He says they're purified by faith. He said, and it's, it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we Jews are saved just as the Gentiles are. And that, my friends, uh, is once again a wonderful summary of biblical Christianity. And it's good news that God does not discriminate. You know, he doesn't discriminate. Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, black, white, Asian, African, rich, poor, it makes no difference. No matter who you are, no no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how dirty and unclean you may be or you may feel, you can be made clean. Not through your good works, not by religious performance or pious rituals. You can be made clean by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. Have you put your faith in him? I hope you have. Let's pray. Our Father, it always amazes me how when reading, uh, reading history... We, we, we enter the discussion thinking just how different everything was and how different people were, and there's some truth to that. But when you, when you dig beneath the surface, we really begin to see how people are people are people. 
And even those in the, in the, in the, the early church had struggles. And um, sometimes I think we romanticize the early church as if it was this wonderful, calm, exciting, you know, place where everybody got along and did all the right things all the time. And, and the reality, reality is that's not the case. That there were struggles and there were disagreements because people were as wounded and broken and sinful as we are. And so uh, what we can learn from the church um, definitely applies to us today. And I think of how we have a tendency to slip back into legalism and try to impose our, our preferences, our cultural norms onto others and then judge people's spirituality and, and righteousness by those things. I pray that you would help us to see when we do that and that we would, we would stop it. You know, it's not that we're not called to the moral law, to honesty, to faithfulness, those kind of things, but, but the cultural law, the the, the the Levitical law, the do's and don'ts, um, they don't apply anymore. We're freed, spiritually freed, culturally freed because of Jesus. And your church around the world is a diverse, beautiful, wonderful thing. And in heaven someday we'll all be together and celebrate that great diversity instead of, instead of attacking it or using it against one another. So I pray that you'd help us to see that in our own lives. And um, I pray for maybe some who are here today who've, who, for the first time, have gained an understanding of what Christianity really is about. It's not about, it's not about uh, good works and performance and pious rituals. It's about your grace extended to us through Jesus. Grace that comes and finds us where we live, finds us in the conditions we're in, and, uh, and changes us and gives us life and forgiveness. And we celebrate that today. We thank you for Jesus and all that he's done. May your grace find each of us today. In his name I ask, amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we? Our Father, now as we go out into this world, um, even as we go out into the snow, we're reminded that, that uh, you provide it to nourish the land. Um, and even though it can uh, frustrate us at times, may the beauty of it overwhelm us and remind us of your goodness today. And may we live our lives with such thanksgiving this week uh, that people will see the difference in us and we'll have the opportunity to point them to Jesus. Now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.